Support the Dope Radio was designed to give a platform to the best, most talented, and dopest music creators, enhancers, and magic makers to tell their own stories in their own words. The guests on the show are well-documented as integral parts of the success of your favorite artists and songs. I'm your host, Carla D. Brown, and I'm pulling back the curtain to bring them center stage under their very own spotlight. Let's go. tuned in to another episode of Support the Dope Radio. I'm your host, your girl CB, and I have another guest for you that I'd like you to meet. And quite frankly, I just met him about five days ago myself. And (laughs) I normally, you know, I have a guest on here that I I know personally um, or that I've been following their career for a long time. I know all this fun stuff about them, but um, my guest on this episode, um, I just, I didn't know until about five days ago, but that's how dope he is because just now length the time I got to talk to him, I was like, you have to come do my show. So um, just to kind of give you a little tidbit, um, he, well, he currently is the president of BOE Global, which is a record label that um, he has with his partner, Harmony Samuels, um, or H Money, as some of you may know of him. Um, but he has dedicated his career to the education and advancement of music creators. Um, he's a songwriter himself. He joined EMI Music Publishing as an entry-level executive with an unquenched thirst for great songs and a mission to discover and nurture the best songwriters he could find. He has carved out his place in music industry history by discovering and signing the likes of Pink, The Neptunes, and Rodney Dark Child Jerkins, to name a few. Before leaving EMI, he rose to the post of Senior Vice President, Creative A&R, and is the founder, CEO of Splits Sheets, LLC. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce to you Mr. Brian Jackson. Crowd. Wow. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me, Brian. I know it was like super short notice, but I couldn't let you get away. I was like, if I don't ask him now, he may like disappear. And I never hear from him again, but um, you have an incredible story. And I know that we kind of talked about the other day that you kind of sometimes you deal with the imposter syndrome thing that some of us kind of deal with because I do too. Um, But I feel like I I do this show because I want people to be able to tell their stories, but I also want to be able to give people their flowers um, because sometimes people never get the flowers, um, you know, at all. Um, Or they, you know, get the flowers after they've left this place, right? So um, we want to make sure that the people that uh, are doing really amazing things and contributing to um, the music industry um, get their um, get their reward, so to speak, or their flowers, you know? Um, you've made a great impact. Um, and I want to dedicate this episode um, to a friend of both ours, um, 
LaShawn Big Shiz Daniels, uh, who uh, Brian actually signed to uh, his first publishing deal um, and kind of was responsible for discovering him. But because he isn't here to tell his story, um, I would have loved, 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 loved to have um, LaShawn on Support the Dope Radio, but he's not here. And I said since he um, passed way too soon that anything that I could do to continue his legacy or keep his name, you know, mentioned, I would do that. So if you are unfamiliar with who he is, go look him up. That's your homework assignment for today. <laughs> and I will leave it at that before either of us get emotional. Um, we thank him for his contribution to music because it's huge. In yeah. any case, Brian, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> how, are you how are you feeling today? Oh, I'm good. I'm good. Just taking it okay. as it comes. And um, yeah, best I can do. Awesome. Um, so let's uh, take a journey back because, um, as I said, I don't really have too much of, you know, a, a backstory about, you know, where you came from or anything like that. So why don't we start at the beginning? Um, where are you originally from? Um, Chesapeake, Virginia. It's a city outside of uh, Norfolk, Virginia Beach. It's part of okay. a a cluster called Tidewater, uh, which is actually where uh, Timberland and Missy and the Neptunes, everybody's from. So it's a That's nice- That's what I was going to say. I, I heard you were in some pretty good company out there. Yeah, it's like a little <laughs> milking pot of talent. Yeah. Yeah, as, a lot of dope people. As Pharrell's, um, Pharrell's uh, thing during the summer, uh, there's something in the water. There's, mm-hmm. there's, there's something in the water down there. Yeah. I believe it. Well, we'll all take a summer trip out there and see if we can get some of that water. (laughs) We can have a little portion of what they got because they got a lot of talent out there. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so did you live there all your life? Did you um, leave there as as you were there all your life? Okay. Until I went off to college at University of Virginia. It was right there in Chesapeake. Um, But then as soon as I left UVA, I left Virginia. Um, Mm Mm-hmm. And went to New York. So, but yeah, born and raised. Yeah. What did, What was your, uh, what'd you get your degree in? Believe it or not, I was mm-hmm. a drama I was trained as an actor. <laughs> but I didn't want to be a struggling actor. So right. I, after school, I just stopped acting. Okay. And that's why I always uh, like to ask people what they, what, what they actually studied in school, because a lot of times what they studied in school has nothing to do um, with their career choice or where they ended up. So I always find that interesting, um, especially when, when people had the stories of, you know, like me, like I, I grew up dancing and singing and, you know, I was always involved in something like music related, playing instruments, but um, I always grew up with the understanding that, you know, um, dance wasn't going to pay the bills. You know, you were like, I had to, you know, go to, I was told to go to school, be a lawyer or be a doctor, you know, um, a lot of things that parents, you know, tell their kids because they want them to be, you know, successful and make all this money. Um, so we usually end up on, you know, some path that we didn't really want to be on and then eventually find our ways back to what we actually want to do. So, um, so I was, that's in school, I was when as a, as a business major and, you know, back mm. then my father would pay for us all to go to school. And so he had his wishes and desires, but I went as a business major and discovered the courses that I was taking. I was like, this is not me. So I had to make an executive and ROTC. He wanted, I started in ROTC cause he wanted me to be in ROTC if I was in school. And I did that for once, uh, 
first year and I was like, I can't do this. So I sort of bucked the bucked my father and got out of ROTC, ended up as a theater major and you know, the rest is history. But see, you're right. Sometimes you go to school, you go, you do things because somebody else wants you to do it. Mm-hmm. You have to find your way. Yeah. So were you always um, interested in music? Like when did you really start getting into music or finding out that it was something that you were even passionate about? Oh yeah. Now that was from early on. I think when I, mm-hmm. I think when I was like 14, 15, 14 and 15, I wrote like my first song. I, I found <laughs> it's the funniest thing. <laughs> I was cutting grass one day and I found something was sparkling and I reached down and it was a diamond ring. And I was like, I didn't know if it was real or not, but I put it in my pocket, finished cutting the grass, went in and it looked real. So we took it to a pawn shop and it was real. <laughs> so I ended up pawning that ring to get a keyboard. And I started teaching myself to play key, you know, the keyboard and writing songs. And I'd, so that's how I got into music. And I just started diving deeper and deeper from that point. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, did you ever any had have? Did you have a desire to um, any like singing or um, being an artist? Oh yeah. Um, I thought I was going to be the uh, new edition replacement when yeah. when Bobby left. I was convinced they were going to come find me. You were the next in line. Well, you have to fight my brother because my brother said that all the time that he was oh, next. I thought I was for sure going to be discovered and be new edition, but that did not happen. Obviously. Um, okay. But yeah, I can't sing either. So, you know, eventually that whole thing just had to go to the wayside. Yeah. Uh-huh. But, okay. Um, so was it your love for music and then like your your business education that kind of um, steered you in a direction of, of doing like music publishing or being more on the on the business side or what happened with that? No, that was completely accidental, too, because I was wow. I was in while I was in school. Mm-hmm. Remember, we were in Virginia. And right. so the there was a thing, a department called the Office of Career um, Planning and Placement. Uh, yeah, it was the OCPP department. It was, that was the name of it. But they're, mm-hmm. they're, uh, what they were set up for was to help us to college students transition into whatever career we wanted. So you would go in and consult with them and they would figure out what you wanted to do. And then they would use their name and connections to call and get you placed at a particular company. So, you know, I you, I knew that I needed to take advantage of that because I was about to graduate from, co- from college, but mm-hmm. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it didn't even dawn on me, the music business. And one day a, a friend at school came by and she was like, oh, do you want to have OCP set you up or something? I was like, I don't know what. I don't know what I would do. Because I was a drama major. What do you do with that? And yeah. she was like, oh, but you, you know, because I had a band in college. So everybody in college knew me as playing in the talent shows and the band, you know. So she said, well, you're into music. Why don't you go into the record business? And I was like, the record business? It didn't even dawn on me that there was a record business. I mean, it's, it's crazy as it. It didn't dawn on me that that was a possibility. Let's put it that way. Right. And so she said, yeah, my uh, my cousin works at CBS Records in New York. And uh, and I was like, oh, wow. So I went into the office the, 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 and I said, they said, well, wait, where would you like to work? I said, uh, 
is it possible to get a job, you know, get something at CBS Records? And they were like, CBS, no one's ever asked for CBS Records, but let's see what we can do. So they called CBS Records in Beltsville, Maryland, because that was the nearest. I, mm-hmm. I tells me they just went down the phone book and saw CBS Records. So right. <laughs> that was one of the division, one of the uh, offshoot offices of CBS Records. And so they called. They asked if I could come in and do an externship, which was a one week thing over the holidays. And the guy on the phone said, yeah, sure. So. Oh, I was so, I mean, I was excited. I was like, oh, this is it. So the time came around. I go to CBS Records in Beltsville with my, with a charcoal, true story, charcoal gray, three-piece pinstripe suit and a briefcase. You remember it in detail. Oh, yes. I'll never forget it. I walk in, <laughs> I walk in the front door and I get to the receptionist. And I mean, I'm sure I was looking like a FBI agent. So I don't, I know I look crazy. <laughs> And so she was like, can I help you? I was like, yeah, I'm here from University of Virginia for the externship program. Uh, and she was like, uh, who did you speak to? I said, I don't know. I didn't. I said my university call. So she said, okay, let me check. So she, they had a college rep there named Josh Rubin. And so she said college, University of Virginia, maybe that she could talk to him. So they call him and he comes walking to the front desk. He has on a T-shirt, mm-hmm. jeans, cowboy boots. Like he was just as casual as you could get. And he was like, uh, can I help you? I said, yeah, my, I'm from the University of Virginia. I was supposed to come for an intern, an ex, you know, to work for the week. He said, oh, that's right. Oh man, I forgot all about you. He's like, oh shoot. Okay, but you know what? Just come on back. So he had nothing for me to do. No he had plan. no plans, no education, nothing. And so as we were walking around the offices, there was a, a young black woman in one of the offices uh, named Linda Penn, and he stopped me by her office. And I guess he was like, well, you're black. She's black. Here you go. And so he. <laughs> He left me in her office and I just stuffed stuff in the envelopes for her. And she told me about this summer internship program for minority students in New York over the summer. Mm-hmm. And so I said, okay. So she called and referred me to this woman and the personnel people in New York. And I called the woman and, um, and it, it's funny I say names because I'd have given props, but Susan Langley, I called her and she um, she's like, well, Brian, there's there's one position left. And, uh, you know, that's working for Larry Davis, but it's his choice of who he hires. And I said, OK, so she gave me his number. And this was back in the day when phone calls were actually long distance phone calls. So right. this was, you know, every call was a, a cost. Uh-huh. I called him on a Monday, top of the week. His assistant answers. He doesn't answer the phone. She's like, well, Brian, he can't answer the phone, but, you know, call back tomorrow. And, um, you know, we'll see if we can get you on the phone. I call back the next day. Hey, Brian. No, unfortunately, he can't talk to you. I said, OK, no, no problem. She's like, but, the, you know, feel free to call again. Call the next day. 
This happened every work day for three months straight. Oh my gosh. I just, I, I was, I mean, I was in the retrospect, that was crazy, but I was young and I was hungry and that's what yeah, happened. Absolutely. And so eventually she and I became really good friends because we spoke every day for three every months. Day. <laughs> so, you so, got it like, what's up, girl? You know what this is. <laughs> so, one, so one day I called and Mildred answered the phone and she was like, before I even speak, she was like, hey, Brian. I was like, hey, Mildred, how you doing? How's the weather? Oh, it's great. Blah, blah. She was like, you know what, Brian, hold on a second. So she puts me on hold. I'm expecting to do the exact same thing we've been doing for the last few months. Mm -hmm. And the next thing I hear, and I'm not going to curse on your show, but the phone picks up and I hear a man's voice. He's like, God dang, you're so persistent. I'm, man, you're getting on my nerves. I can't believe you're just harassing me. Blah, blah, blah. He was like, you got the job. Dang, oh. man. He said, I'll see you this summer. You and wore him down. Wore him down. <laughs> yes. So yes. that summer I went to New York as an, an intern at, um, at CBS Records on the Epic Record side. Okay. The rest is history. After wow. I yeah, I left, I left college my senior year. I drove up to New York. Uh, I didn't have a job, but I knew people at CBS. Mm -hmm. And um, I just went up there and answered phones for, for just whatever I could do. Stuff in envelopes, anybody that could give me anything to do, I was just doing it. Until a job actually opened up at Columbia Records and I got a job. And what was that job at Columbia? Market, uh, marketing coordinator for the uh, urban music division of Columbia Records. I was basically nice. the, I worked with the head of uh, Ruben Rodriguez, rest his soul, he just passed recently. But he hired me, I was working in, he was in radio promotions. So I worked in radio promotions first. Okay. And then he left the company, I segued into the marketing department and it was Sarah Melendez. And then after that, she ended up leaving as well. So then I had no way, no, I had no boss. So I got let go and um, I ran into someone. I met a guy, uh, Dave McPherson, that worked at uh, Mercury Records. And he was like, man, you know what? My boss is looking for somebody. I think, I think you can get this job. I think you work. So he took my resume, sent it over, and I ended up over at Mercury Records. Um, so it, it was seamless, but it was scary at the same time. Well, yeah. I mean, because a lot of times you didn't know where you were going next. Exactly. And I had no money. So New York City and no money, that's a bad, bad combination. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are many people that are willing to just take that big of a leap to, you know, not know, to not have any direction as far as where they're going and not have any money. That's mm. a lot. I mean, even if you look at um, calling somebody every work day for three months mm. and asking to speak to them and being told, um, try again tomorrow, try again tomorrow. Um, a lot of people would have given up after day three. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let alone three months. Um, but well, that speaks fear to what My fear was the day that I don't call, somebody else is going to call. And there you go. And then I'm done. That's so, it. Yeah. yeah. Well, shout out to, to persistence because that <laughs> is some persistence, <laughs> and, and that's some humility. Getting there, whatever you got for me to do, I'm I'm here to do it. I'll yeah. stuff your envelopes. I'll and answer the phones. And as far as taking the leap, you know, I always I always told people, God looks out for babies and fools. You know that expression. Well, mm -hmm. I wasn't a baby, so I must have been a damn fool. 
But either way, he had my back. <laughs> so. Yeah. He was in there for sure. Yeah. Um, so how, so you, I know you said you talked about the, was it a marketing coordinator? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you, how did you end up getting into publishing? So after that, I told you I got to Mercury Records after Columbia Records. And mm-hmm. I heard there was a job. I heard, so I was working in publicity and marketing. I mean, publicity and artist development. So mm-hmm. I was assistant there and I was, you know, I was working with Black Sheep and Vanessa Williams, Tony, 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 like uh, as an assistant in that department. And I actually took the initiative and wrote out a press plan for Black Sheep. And because they were a new group and nobody knew what to do with them, you know, Jackie Reinhardt was actually let me go on the road with them and take them to the different, because I was young. I was like, I had just got out of college. So mm-hmm. I was taking Black Sheep around to Howard and Hampton and, you know, we were just on the road, just doing it up. Yeah. And uh, the choice is yours came out and blew up. And, right. yo, it blew up. So um, because of that, when I heard there was a job open at, down at, I wanted to, I knew I wanted to do A&R. And my, I heard the president, Ed Eckstein, was the first black president of a major label. I heard he was looking for an assistant, a second assistant. So I went down to Ed and I walked in his office and I was like, hey, um, I work down the hall. He's like, I know what you're doing, son. I've seen you down there, but I know what you're doing. I was like, oh, great. And I told him I'd love to, you know, be your assistant. And he was like, all right, great. Well, he took me up on it and hired me. So I ended up as his second assistant. So my only job was to be his assistant's assistant. That was my job. Okay. The where it changed is one day when he was out, he was out of town for about a week. And so I went into his office. His office had CDs, tapes. It was just a pile of music, but it wasn't organized. If, if he's listening, he'll be like, yeah, he's true. So <laughs> when he wasn't there, I went into his office and I just started taking all of the music, separating the lyrics and the cover letter from the tape. And then I would number each one and I put made a filing system. And I went out to the store and bought a rack so I could stack all the CDs with and numbered them all along corresponding with the letter. And then I just, it was a file, it was a system. Mm-hmm. So when he came back, the only thing on his desk was this folder. And he, you know, and that rack on the wall with the music and, and it was a gamble for sure. And even Christine told me, she was like, Brian, I don't know how he's going to feel about this. I was like, I know. And then I went in and I listened to everything. And I had a column where I wrote down my thoughts on what, on the music. So he didn't really have to waste his time or this is good. I don't think mm-hmm. this was. And so when he came back, he walked past us. He was like, hey, Christian, hey, Brian, hey. He goes in the office and like clockwork, about 10 seconds later, Christine. And he was like, well, she said, Christine, he screamed. And I said, oh, oh, she was like, oh, oh. And so she went in the office and I was just out there and like, so she comes back out. She was like, Ed wants to see you. And I was like, oh, no. So I walked in. He was like, Brian, I said, yeah. He was like, what is this? And so I opened up the book and I showed him. I said, okay, so. Here are the cover letters that they're dated, and this is the chart, the date they came in, 
and said, this is the, you know, the actual letter that came with it. But if you look on the rack, if the number corresponds to it, that's the music. And over here is just where I listened and made some comments. He said, oh, my. Oh, no. This is your job from now on. <laughs> and I was like, oh, great. So I became this guy. I was Ed's A&R guy. So I listened to every, anything they said to him. I listened to it first. And that way I was in a position to, you know, I was doing the role of an A&R. I was still an assistant, but that's what A&R people do. Right. And um, so the Dave McPherson, the guy I told you that helped me get the job in the publicity department, he was an A&R at that time. And he said, oh man, I need a, he said, you got to find me a single for Joe. I got, I need a song for Joe because he had just signed Joe. And so I said, okay, fine. And so I'm listening to songs and it just so happens that exact same day, a couple of hours later, I heard a song that was submitted. It was, um, it was unsolicited. So I wasn't supposed to be listening to it, but I listened to it and I said, oh my gosh, this song's incredible. So I went mm -hmm. down to his office. I said, listen to this. And so he listened to it and he was like, yeah, that's cool. I said, no, it's not cool, dude. That's a smash. I said, rewind it and listen again. You know, rewind a cassette tape. You know how long ago this was. Right. <laughs> so, so he ran it back to the top and he listened again. He was like, no, 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 no. I hear you, man. I'm going to play it for Joe and his manager. Mm -hmm. Well, sure enough, about a couple of weeks later, he came running down the hall. Dude, that song you found was going to be the first single. I was like, I told you it was a smash. So that was my first like placement of a song. And in that same quarter, I had been listening to other songs and I found a song that ended up being the first single for Will Downing. Uh, I heard a song that came to Ed directly. I listened to it and said, you know, I made a note like you might want to check this out for Lita Adams. And he listened. He was like, this is a smash. So three songs in the same quarter all came out. The radio was, they were all on the radio at the same time. So, so you're like that guy right now. You're that I, guy. Well, for Ed, yeah. yeah. So um, there was a, a publisher, uh, DreamWorks named Molly Kay. And um, she knew Evan Lamberg was at EMI Publishing. He knew he was looking for an, an a &R, I mean, a new creative manager for EMI. And so she told him, like, you might want to call this guy that works for Ed. Like, he has, his ears are great. So I get a call about this job. And, and, and I was like, okay. The crazy thing is when I went to the interview, I had the same day, a few hours later, I had an interview at Arista for an A&R job at Arista. <clears throat> so... I was studying the Arista catalog. I was going through their history. Like, obviously, that's the job I wanted. I mm -hmm. spent hours upon hours for days studying Arista's roster and the executives and getting prepared for that. I didn't know what publishing was. So I didn't, I did no preparation for that. Mm -hmm. So I went to the meeting and Evan said, well, do you know what publishing is? I was like, no. And so he ended up telling me what it was. And I said, oh, OK. So then he said, do you know anything about EMI? I was like, no. Like, <laughs> the worst interview you've ever seen. Because you're, you're so far over to. So far. Just horrible interview. So at least in my mind. And so uh, 
I leave there and it was, it was probably a couple of a week and a half, two weeks later. I get a phone call from Evan. Now I'm sitting here waiting for Arista to call. Like I'm visualizing I'm about to do this thing with being under Davis. I'm going to be no call, but I get a call from Evan. He said, Hey, Brian, it's Evan Lambert from EMI. I was like, Hey, how's it going? He said, so, um, yeah, I was, I would, I'd like to, you know, to offer you, uh, a job over here to EMI. And so I was, it was complete silence because I'm waiting for him to say, but, and he never said, but. And so I'm like, it hit me. I'm like, he said, well, what do you think? And I was like, oh my gosh, he just offered me a job. Like I'm tripping. But I wasn't over the moon because I'm waiting. going to call. I don't even know if I told Evan this. I'm waiting for Ev- Aris to call. And I saw I hung up the phone and I went in and told Evan, I mean, my uh, Ed, my boss. And he was very well aware of EMI. It was the largest publishing company in the world. It was, you know, publishing the A&R. If you do A&R for publishing, it's a longer career. Like he knew that that was a great opportunity. So mm-hmm. he, told, he said, look, if you stay here working for me, you're only going to be known as Ed's A&R kid. He said, you go take that job. You will establish your own self with your own wings and able to fly. That's a good boss. Right? He could have kept you for himself, Loki. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I took the job, and to this day, I get all this credit for the, you know, finding all this great talent. And but I have to give credit to Evan Lamberg because how he saw the talent in me, I have no idea. Yeah. But for some reason, he gave me that job, and the rest is history. Yeah. yeah. Up from there. So what was your first, as you were finally starting to understand what publishing actually is mm-hmm. by way of this new job, um, what were the, what were some of the first few like pieces of it that really kind of connected for you to kind of understand either what publishing was or like the importance of publishing? Well, a lot, I, a lot of people don't know what publishing is. Yeah, no, but I think I, I think the reason that I was able to do well in it because, I mean, of course you have the business side of it and the copyright ownership and the splits and who gets what part of the administer, you know, administering the copyright. There's the business side, but then there's the creative side where you're dealing with songwriters. Mm-hmm. And I told you, I started out, I was writing music from since I was 16. Mm-hmm. So that side of it, I was able to connect with writers. Because as soon as every publishing company is coming after the same person, there has to be something you do to connect with these songwriters. And I actually gave a damn about the writers because mm-hmm. I'm a writer. So, right. you know, I, you know, I consider myself, you're basically a manager for songwriters inside the building. That's in a nutshell. Once you've signed them, You've got to help exploit the songs and help get them working and that type of stuff. So um, I think once I signed my first writer and I had to help them get in rooms with the A&R people and take their songs and pitch it, I think that's when I really started understanding the importance of music publishing company and a, 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 a 
person at the label or at the publishing company that actually cares about who the writer is. Because you can get lost at a publishing company. Like, you can get signed, and if there's nobody within the company that's actually paying attention to you, you can get lost. Mm -hmm. So... It was it was a hands on thing. What you know? That's how I figured it all out. So as as an A and R, because I tell people all the time that I was like, I'm, I would make a great A and R, don't y'all think? And I, <laughs> in my mind, um, but one thing that has always kind of scared me off from it are all the stories that I hear about people saying, like, well, I had to basically put my job on the line to you know go to bat for this for this person um and i'm like oh that's like a lot of pressure is that, is that something that i want but on the same at the same flip side of the same token i guess um it's so rewarding if it works if it does work Absolutely. Um, so is is that kind of um i guess your your driving force i mean i know that you're saying that the songwriters are important to you because you're a songwriter. Um, but just like from the side of being an A and R, what what's the hardest part you would say of the job? That's it. You know, you're you live or die by your last success. You know, it's mm-hmm. like what it's done for me lately. But when you sign a, a writer, or it depends on especially this depending on the the degree or the level of the writer and how much money you give them, you're jeopardizing your job. Because if the more, if you keep doing it and they keep not making money, you're going to be fired. So imagine the stress of knowing that I'm taking gambles that could lose my job. Mm-hmm. But if you don't do it, you're probably going to lose your job anyway because you're not producing at all. So you, yeah. you almost have to trust your instincts in your gut. And then, you know, some people aren't cut out for it. Some people do not have the instinct required, but mm-hmm. you, you won't know it until you are in it. You're in a hot seat. Yeah. So when you do sign someone and, you know, their career takes off, you know, or they blow up, you know, and you're responsible for having signed that deal, is there any type of, um, is there any type of credit that comes back to you, um, monetarily speaking, um, for that for that success, or is it just you're on a salary and that's it? No, unless I mean, not if you're working for a company, you get a mm-hmm. huge salary. I mean, that's why yeah. they get paid well, um, right? You know, and then I'm sure there's some people who've negotiated a point here. There, I don't know, on, especially on the record side, publishing mm-hmm. t- tends to not be that way. Um, yeah. But what you what you get out of it is the legacy, mm-hmm. because, you know, the CEO, uh, Marty Bandier told me once, he was like, O'Brien, you know, no one can ever actually, no one can ever take away your success. You're like, that goes with you, you know, to the grave. So, yeah, it goes beyond you. Yeah. yeah. So that, and it's quite like, you know, like you said, the, it's so rewarding to like Pharrell and Chad to, Sign them before and like before anybody knew who the Neptunes were. Pink didn't even have a record out. She was just a signed to the face making records, trying to figure out what you know, her, you know what what they were work. They were trying to figure out what to do with her. Yeah. Um, so, and then Rodney was a seventeen year old kid, like in a 
basement of his parents' house to to see them go from there to becoming, you know, Pink and Pharrell have stars on the Walk of Fame. So I used to live right off of the Hollywood Walk of Fame and just to walk every day and wow. see their stars was like, oh my gosh, it's- That's huge. Yeah. Well, tell us the Rodney story, how you found Rodney and ended up signing him his publishing deal. So it's I- It's story Huh? It's when story you, time. Brian uh, has great stories, y'all. That's really why he's here. So I was in my office one day in, in, New, in New York and I was watching, um, uh, no, no, I actually had a meeting that day because after mm -hmm. I found that song for Joe, um, mm -hmm. I signed the writer, Jay Dibbs, the producer of the song to EMI. So the song was out, it was moving along. And uh, the way that you, oh no, it was the way that you love. It was the way that you love. I can't, wait a minute, was it the way that you love? One of the songs they were doing a remix of. Okay. And so I went to, yeah, it was definitely the way that you love. Um, I went to Bruce Carbone's office. He was A&R at Mercury, where I used to work. And they were, he was playing me remixes of the songs. And so I heard this remix and I'm like, who and what is that? He was like, oh man, it's this kid named Rodney Jerkins. He's only 17, like, but he's amazing. I said, oh my gosh. I said, you know, where is he? He was like, oh, he's in Jersey. I said, can you connect me with him? And he was like, he was like, yeah, yeah. So he gave me Reverend Jerkins number and his, Rodney's father. I called him and arranged to go down there. So I hopped on the train and because uh, remember, I was a young executive with no money. So right. flying was not cost effective. <laughs> yeah. Well, <not> an option. <laughs> yeah. So I hop on the train and I go down to Jersey and um, they pick me up at the train station. I go and I sit, the, I, they take me downstairs into the basement and I see Rodney's young kid sitting there you know, pl most pleasant, jovial, like just like, you could feel he was a good kid. But I looked over and, you know, he had a small setup, a deep rolling D50, a Boss 16 channel mixer, and he had its MPC on milk crates. And I'm like, okay, this is a, you know, but when he pushed play, oh, I could not believe my ears. I was like, what am I hearing? And as I said to your class, as an A&R person, you've got to keep your face, you know, you can't let them know exactly what you're thinking because you you're going to have to negotiate with them. So right. I'm trying to keep my cool, but I was blown away. And so, um, he, you know, we got to talking after he was playing with music and now I was really intrigued, like by this kid. And, you know, he told me he had, you know, come up under Teddy he had tracked Teddy Riley down and was like being groomed by Teddy. And, um, you know, he had these aspirations. He was like, you know, you know, Michael Jackson, you know, the Teddy's album is good, but Michael Jackson needs me to like really, you know, come back and like really hit. I was like, Mike, Michael Jackson needs you. What, what are you talking right. about? Like, who says that? <laughs> are you bugging? But, and so the other thing he told me, was um, he said, I want to be the first person to take like hip hop beats. 
and like put live orchestra on it, like a real live orchestra in them. And it sounded like, well, I can't even imagine what he's hearing, but he, mm-hmm. he was so clear about it. And so I was like, okay, okay, yeah. Long story short, I ended up signing Rodney and years later, I am riding next to him. I'm in a cart and he's on the, I think he was on the moped and we're riding around Neverland because Rodney is working with Michael Jackson and every move Michael made, Rodney was there. And I was like, oh my gosh, he said that when he was 16, 17 years old. Right. And so the other thing that happened, I was sitting in the studio, I'm looking through the window. It was like 15, 20 piece orchestra, all like older white people, a couple of young, but they're like playing these, you know, the beat starts and it's this hard beat. And I'm watching them play the boy's mind. And I'm like, I'm literally tripping because I'm like, he told me he was going to do this years ago. Mm-hmm. So that vision that he had was, again, to sign him when he was a kid with yeah. no music out. Before he was Dark Child. Before, before anybody. Before he was Dark Child. Yeah. Um, yes, yeah, it's very rewarding. And then I signed LaShawn like right after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for mo- for people that don't know how um, who LaShawn was, um, if you listen to most of Dark Child's hits, um, LaShawn was right there with them. Yeah. Um, you know, so you rock my world, you know, uh, Michael Jackson. Say my name. Uh, mm-hmm. The list is is way too long to even. Way too it, long. He wasn't man enough for me, mm-hmm. Tony. Just so many. Yeah, yeah. So two two like genius musical minds yeah. together. Um, Perfect. Yeah, but shout out to um, to Brian for seeing Rodney at his. Happy, jovial, seventeen-year-old self, sixteen, seventeen, and going to bat for him on his vision because that's pretty much what you did, and why we're able to hear so much of his stuff to this day. And and I was specifically told you're fired by the CEO if if this does not work. If this doesn't work. You're fired. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so yeah, that's a gamble. That I mean to like how how often are you making those types of introductions at your job by saying I found this guy or this girl um how frequent does that happen for you like when over the course of like an AR's career are they bringing people in weekly are they bringing people in like no monthly? You, you don't I mean a good A&R person is not necessarily being brought in anything you okay. you, always, you always have your ears open, mm-hmm. you know. You're always at a cookout, a family reunion, and somebody's like, "You know, your cousin can sing." Like it's always, <laughs> you're never off work. Like twenty four uh-huh. hours a day. Oh, Brian, I just came across this writer. I'm telling you, they don't. All right, send it to me. All constantly, mm-hmm. like there are, there's no work hours. Yeah, so you got your ear open. Um, and then there's the whole just living life. If you, you know, I've, I came across somebody, I didn't end up signing, but I was walking down the street on Hollywood Boulevard and I heard like, somebody singing and I, I never stopped for somebody singing. He blew me away. And I went over, this kid was a star. 
And I was like, dude, I, I'm sorry. Like I waited 30 minutes for him to finish his set just so I could talk to him. But as an A&R person, you're always in that mindset. You're always and you, and you mentioned um, earlier today about some people don't have the instinct that it takes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is there is there ever really a way that you can prepare yourself to have a successful A&R career? Um, or is this really just something that you're born with? Or is it something that you can kind of fine tune or train for? I don't know if I can answer that. I don't I don't think it's a natural thing for everybody. But uh-huh. I, what, I, what I do know is the for only you, thing. For you, it's natural, you would say. I would, yeah, I have to say that because if I yeah. feel something, it's usually right. But which leads me to the point, the only thing that you can hone is training yourself to listen to yourself. So if mm-hmm. you have a gut instinct and you trust your gut, you have to be willing to fight for that, fight for it. Right. And, you know, so trusting, you have to, then that's a muscle you have to build mm-hmm. to have, feel you want to do something, but trusting it enough to pursue it. At that point, you just have to cross your fingers and pray. But, you know, and, and I have to believe if somebody signs things over and over again, everything flops, you know, it's just not, may not be a thing. Right. But, but you have to, because I've seen people get fired because they didn't convince their boss to, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it's, it's different levels to this thing. Mm-hmm. So to conviction, you have to have conviction. I think anything you do, you have to have conviction. Yeah. Um, so what was it about the Neptunes when you came across the oh, Neptunes? man. Oh. <laughs> so I was in my office and I was watching, I don't know if it's video. So I was watching, maybe it's, I can't remember. It was on something on BET. Mm-hmm. And I was just watching an MC light had a song called, I can't make a mistake. Didn't really, wasn't really big. I don't know. Your entire audience may have never heard it, and I'm almost sure they haven't. But I was listening to it, and I was like, yo, that is hot. Like, it just was hot to me for some reason. Mm-hmm. And I, it must not have been hot to everybody else because it wasn't that popular. But I got on, I looked up, I called ASCAP and BMI and trying to track down who did that record. And I found out it was Chad Hugo and Pharrell Williams, and it was they went by the Neptunes. So I got their, they met their manager's number, Rob Walker, and I called him. I was like, hey, man, this record sounds crazy to me. He was like, oh, man, you need to meet him. And they, he said they weren't, weren't signed. I said, well, let's do it. He said, yeah, they're in Virginia Beach. And I was like, what? Oh, man, that's my hometown. So... So he for me to go, you know, to meet up with him. So I got on a train, went down to Virginia, stayed at my mother's house and just drove over to the studio and just sat there as they hit me with an onslaught of music just back to back. I'm like, yo, this is crazy. And, you know, it was early uh, Khalees stuff. It was ARD stuff. It was clips, records. He just, they had all this music. Nothing was released. 
like on the radio, they didn't really have anything out on the radio. I mean, he Pharrell had done um, what was that? Let's see now that I'm trying to start. Oh, Rump Shaker. He wrote the hook, the Rump Shaker. Oh. And nobody, I don't know if people know that, but Pharrell was involved. No. In Rump Shaker. No but one he, knows that. All we he, know is Teddy. <laughs> yeah, but he was behind the scenes behind Teddy, so uh-huh. no one knew him for that. And so, but after hearing all this music, I was like, oh my gosh. And the I always tell people the record that I once I heard it, that was all I needed. I heard Caught Out There by Khalees. Yeah. And it hadn't been released yet, mm-hmm. but I'm like, oh my gosh, that is it. So I went back to my office and in New York and went into my bought the CEO's office. And he already, you know, I said, Marty, I know you're gonna think I'm crazy. He's like, Well, what's gonna take to close the deal? I was like, a million dollars. And he was like, You're no way. I was like, I'm telling you, these guys are gonna be huge. And again, but you know I have to fire you. I'm like, right. yeah, of course. yeah, I'm familiar with this story. I get it. Yeah, at this right. point. But um, you know, they he they convinced me. They believed in themselves so much they convinced me. Pharrell looked me dead in my face at that same meeting and he said, we're going to dominate radio. Now, could I comprehend the level of domination he was talking about? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. But he convinced me enough to take a gamble and put my job on the line. And sure enough, when they broke, they broke. Mm-hmm. Mind you, they were breaking at the same time Rodney was breaking. So the game was being killed at that point. That's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. I guess when you, when you're looking for, well, I guess, cause you say you're not, you're never really like looking for anything specific, but um, when you think about a dark child sound or a Neptune sound, um, there wasn't anything else out there at the time that sounded like nope. either of their sounds. How much did that play a part in you deciding to take a gamble on them? Because sometimes people, they do want you to recreate something that's already hot. Like we want you to go find another song like this. that's on the radio. It's doing really well or is rising the charts Like we want this. Yeah. But see, I, I couldn't, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, driven. That wasn't moving me because I wasn't even mm-hmm. thinking they don't sound like anybody else. Although I clearly could hear they didn't sound like anybody else. My thing was this stuff, this is hot. Like this is going to hit. I didn't know when, I didn't know how, but I knew it was going to take off. And it wasn't that quick. I mean, it was probably about a year, year, about a year and a half before any of those records started coming out and impacting at least a year after I signed up. But when they started going, they started clicking. So, Pink. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love Pink. She, she's so, she. So do I. So swaggy. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> you describe them, swaggy. Yeah, she's, she's swaggy. I, I, I like women when they're swaggy. We, get, we have swag, too. You know? <laughs> um, 
But how do you discover someone like a pink? Because I know that you said she was she was really young when you found her, um, had pink hair, um, but she didn't have anything that was released. Yeah, um, so she actually was signed to the Face Records. Through, mm-hmm. So she was in a group called Choice. Mm-hmm. And so that group never popped off. but And the group was actually dropped. But she was retained by LaFace. They kept her under contract. And I met her at the point that they were, uh, I assume L.A., you know, even uh, L.A. Reed decided she, he wanted her to go R&B. So I met her when they were trying to figure out her sound and songs and recording records. And that's how she ended up with this group, the specialist, this production company. And I went to the studio to meet them. Mm. I did not know who they were working with. I just knew they were in the studio a couple of blocks away from my office. So I went to meet them. And when I got there, there was, you know, they were in, a, in the middle of a break. So no, they weren't playing any music or anything. And nobody was in the booth. They were just sitting in, in the room talking. And uh, as I'm sitting there talking to them, the door opens and this petite white chick would do extremely bright pink hair walks in and I'm like, what? The, what? And so they introduced me and that swag you're talking about just yeah. off of her. She just was the coolest swag. I was like, yo, this sick is cool. So, mm-hmm. you know, they introduced me to her. You know, she was like, when are we going to get started again? They were like, oh, anytime. And so she was like, nice meeting you. She went through the door and I turned to them and I said, that girl is a star. And they were like, but you haven't heard any music. You don't even know what she sounds like. I was like, I don't need to. That girl's a star. And so I asked him, like, can you bring her back out here? And when she came back out, I asked if you'd have a publishing deal. She said, no. And I was like, oh, you know, that excitement I told you, keeping my face, you know. I had to keep poker face. <laughs> yeah. Had to keep them concealed. And I was like, Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So I'm like racing inside. I'm like, okay. Uh, she, and then she told me she wrote that song, which was the title track of the first album called um, Can't Take Me Home. Mm-hmm. She said, Yeah, I wrote that. I wrote, I write everything. I was like, Oh boy. And so her voice, when I heard her voice, oh my gosh, I was like, Oh, this girl is out of here. I thought she was a star before I heard her. Right. Before I heard her, I was like, Oh yeah. my gosh. This... Yeah. So I, um, I said, what would it take to consider a publishing deal? She thought I was crazy, you know, and they were like, you better tell them. And so sarcastically, she said a million dollars. I was like, are you sure? What? Which made her think I was even crazier. Right. That you were considering the million dollars. Talking about, I said, you just said for a million dollars, you would consider a publishing deal. I said, Mm -hmm. sure. And she was like, yeah. I said, okay, nice meeting you. And so she went and biked the boot. I said, fellas, I got to go. So I, <laughs> I ran back to my, I ran back to my office. I think I walked a few times, but I trotted. <laughs> Let's say I trotted back to my office. Okay. And, and I walked inside and then the lights, I mean, it was nighttime. The lights were still on down the hall in my boss's office. I walked past my office. I went straight to his door. I said, Evan, I am about to sign the next biggest star in the music business. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, there's a girl named Pink. She's going to be a superstar. And he was like, 
okay, Brian, if you say so. So I went in in my office, turned the computer back on, did a little deal memo. I went to the office early the next day, went straight to the head of business affairs. I said, Clark, we have to close this quickly. (laughs) And he was like, okay, we'll we'll get on. I was like, no, no, I'm not joking. Like the world cannot know that we're making this girl an offer because a bidding war will break out. And he was like, oh, yeah, no problem. So we quietly closed that deal under the rug, I mean, under the radar, and the the rest is history. History. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but she's such an amazing writer. I don't know if y'all realize she she wrote um, What Do You Want From Me? Alec, uh, um, Adam Lambert, What Do You Want uh, From Me? What Do You Want From Me? And if you well, go I, I can hear that now, now that you say that. Exactly. Yeah. And, she, you know, she wrote... Um, we had, she wrote, a, I think it was a Faith Hill record. Like, she's an amazing songwriter. Yeah. And it's not all of her albums. You can tell she's amazing. Yeah. And, but, and she's, um, she's diverse, too. Exactly. She mm-hmm. told me when I first signed it, we were sitting in the, she was working on the record. We were sitting in the, uh, at the studio. And she said, you know, L.A. wants me to do this R&B thing. She was like, I'll do it. I'm a, but it, as soon as I, as soon as this blows up and I'm, you know, known, she was like, I'm not going to be put in a box. She was like, I might do a pop album. I might, she said, hell, I might do an album of ballads one day, but I refuse to be put in a box. And if you look at her career, it's exactly what she did. That is what she did. Mm-hmm. She was not. And it's so interesting that these um, people that you discovered that had these visions from early on that actually said to you, this Mm -hmm. is what's going to happen with my career. They all saw it come to fruition. Clear as day. And And that taught me that you have to have a vision for yourself and you have to have conviction and believe it before you can sell somebody else on it. Because if they didn't sell me on it, you best believe I wasn't going to risk my job. Mm -hmm. So my, uh, they put in me confidence to go do what I had to do. But they wouldn't have had that confidence if they didn't have it in themselves first. That's dope. So y'all, clearly y'all understand that Brian Jackson, I'm sorry, Brian K. Jackson. (laughs) Is the man in these streets? You know what I'm saying. <laughs> you pretty much put half of your um, teenage years, child years, how uh, depending on your age range, uh, put a lot of music out there for you guys to listen to. Not not directly, but you get what I'm saying. He he discovered some really important people with some really incredible talent and set them up, teed them up, basically for their their career to take off. So um, that's what's up. So we're going to switch gears. Um, so for all of you creators out there that have ever um, fought over split sheets, because we know, we know uh, <laughs> you guys are out here with with battling splits and who gets what. And um, Brian played a part in making sure that you guys could have a way to um, kind of decide who did what and how much they're getting and uh, what we know is split sheets. Well, so how did it, that come out? Well, again, it was not reinventing. I didn't invent anything. Like 
Uh-huh. You know, as a publisher, <laughs> we had to, you know, split sheets have been around since the dawn of time. Right. <laughs> but what it was is as a, when I started managing after I left DMI, um, Harmony um, and uh, Courtney Harrell, a brilliant songwriter, you know, I was, as a manager then, I was in a position where I had to go behind them and make sure all the splits were right because they had to get turned into the record label for their royalties to be paid out. And, and um, you know, so when I first started managing them, I took stacks, I printed out stacks of split sheets, just like, look, keep this at the studio. You keep these in your purse. When you finish a session, just fill these things out with the writer, just document it. So we won't have to fight over this later and deal with the problems. Mm-hmm. So, and I, and it was a template. It was a, you know, if you go on right now and type in split sheet, you can find a gazillion forms that you can print out and just use. The problem is nobody uses them. So after, you know, they did a song called Think, uh, Think Like a Man for the soundtrack. And it ended up being a cluster, you know, <laughs> it ended up being a hot mess. Uh-huh. And so after fighting and dealing with the label and, you know, uh, Neo and Rick Ross and Eric Bellinger's people, it was so many writers on that thing. I just got frustrated. And I was sitting in the uh, studio one day and I... I really was upset because I'm like, I gave them these split sheets. I don't, you know, I printed them out for them. It was easy. Yeah. They didn't use them. And I said, it's got, you know, as I was looking around the room, I saw one of them on there um, was, was, you know, texting something on their phone. You know, Courtney was in the booth with her iPad looking at lyrics. Somebody else was in the back corner on a laptop. And, and I remember thinking to myself, Y'all can bring all these mobile devices in here, but you can't bring the split sheets in here. And that's when it hit me. I'm like, you know what? This needs to be converted to something on their phone or or computer because obviously they always have those with them. Mm -hmm. So I just, you know, I I came up with, uh, I mean, split sheets obviously is not a, was the name they're called, but I had an idea to just call it split sheets with a Z. And I was able to trademark the name and uh, I just started developing this app with, you know, I found a coder and he had a a team of people and I just told him what he needed to do. And I would send him graphics, you know, I taught myself how to make graphics and I would send it to him and he would send it back. And this went on for like literally nine months. It was like giving birth to something. And it, it was exactly nine months. And yeah, so the app, I released the app in the stores and I started getting feedback, well, and on the computer, laptop. And it was, you know, it's not currently still active, Mm -hmm. but to see the impact it had from um, writers from Australia, Africa, Malaysia, I'm not lying. I was... I was reading comments. People were actually emailing me and, oh, my God, this is, you know, we've been waiting for something like this. It's so convenient. This is blah, 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 blah. And uh, so it, that was rewarding. And it mm-hmm. wasn't profitable because it's an app. It only costs a dollar right. nine with So, but I knew going in, it was not going to be a market that would be like a keychain or something that everybody had to have because, Mm-hmm. The music industry is a niche thing, mm-hmm. but 
you know, it was re- it was as rewarding as signing the Neptunes and seeing them su- succeed um, because the whole point was to get people using. And now the irony is people still don't handle their business. So I also learned creating that it doesn't matter what you give them. Yeah. If people are not handling their business. They're not going to handle their business. Yeah, that's so, true. So, but, you know, that was that was feels like a lifetime ago, but. Yeah. It was it was definitely rewarding. Yeah. And there, there's some real fights out here over splits. Oh, yeah. Oh, um, yeah. But you can lead the horse to water. But you can't make a drink. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but no, that's dope. Um, so what do you see as yourself? Um, what path, I guess, are you taking now? Are you um, pretty set with where you are now, the label that you're at? Um, are you working on any other projects? Um, what's next for Brian K. Jackson? Uh, you know, I right. I think the next thing up is we're really trying to set up uh, uh, the publishing company and really uh, the record side is going pretty well, but the publishing side and um, joining forces in the JV and just really taking investors and being able to reproduce what I did for EMI, but for self. And at the end of the day, that's the perfect scenario for everybody. But yeah. the the ear for music hasn't gone anywhere. The ear for talent hasn't gone anywhere. Um, my business part, Harmony, obviously knows talent because every time he produces somebody, it blows up. So the key is that's the next thing they, you know, just continuing to disc. I don't know. I could live the rest of my life discovering new talent and watching them succeed. I mean, it's that rewarding. Yeah. So. Yeah. I can see that. Mm-hmm. Um, is there any advice you would give to um, say a songwriter who has, um, they've been doing a decent amount of, you know, songwriting, but they haven't really had uh, a placement yet, um, but they're looking for a publishing deal. Uh, what's what's the best advice you would have to give to them? Don't do it. <laughs> That's fair. No, no, I'm saying I think I think the problem uh, with writers going to get publishing deals, I think ninety mm-hmm. percent of them are doing it because they heard you should yeah. get a publishing deal, right? Without right. understanding what they're getting involved with or what you know. Who knows? I mean, some writers don't actually need a publishing company. Mm-hmm. They're already connected with people in the industry. They're already in rooms writing on different, you know, p- you know, big writers. And because I've met them, they just don't have publishing deals, but they're in every room I go in. Yeah. Well, if they get a publishing deal, uh, the publishing company, what's the publishing company's objective to get them in those rooms that they're already in? So mm-hmm. you give away half of your publishing to somebody but putting them in the rooms you're already in doesn't make much sense. So at that point, you know, people tend to need a publishing deal for money purposes, like in advance. Well, if you don't have any placements, what kind of advance you think you're getting? Mm-hmm. It's not going to be a lot. And you're, you're probably going to spend it up in a matter of a week and a half. And then you're, then you're back to, you know, broke again. Right. So, um, I would say do homework, understand what publishing companies do for you, understand 
what you are, what your value is first and foremost, because when you enter into a co-publishing agreement, you already have a company. You are your own company. You're your own publishing company. Mm -hmm. You do a co-publishing agreement with a major publisher. That doesn't mean that you don't still have to do what you're supposed to do. Your job is to keep writing. Your job is to keep networking. Your job is to continue fostering the relationships you would have been doing. Because if you sit back and you expect the publishing company to do everything, and earlier I started out by saying people can get lost, then you're just going to have a publishing deal in name only. And it's not yeah. going to be benefiting you. And the same way, you know, uh, when I was telling you when I was calling, trying to get an internship, mm -hmm. I found that when I was senior VP at the company, like I literally had about 100 writers that were I had to look after. Well, if a hundred writers, I'm probably not paying attention to a particular writer every day. But yeah. if that writer calls me on a regular checking in and I'm finishing a meeting with an A&R person, they're looking for a song for Sierra. And I just spoke to this writer. You don't think that's the first writer I'm going to think about? Right. I just spoke to them. Mm -hmm. um, so that person, that particular writer is doing their job their end of the deal in a co-publishing agreement. It's a two-way street. So I would just tell writers, don't go into these publishing deals thinking that it's a one-way street. It's not. It'll be, you'll have a horrible experience. And I guarantee you, everybody that's a writer listening to your show right now that's in a publishing deal, a lot of them complain about their publishing deals because mm -hmm. they're looking at it the wrong way. But it can be beneficial, but you just have to know what you, you have to be educated. Yeah. Uh, so what would you say um, when we, we talk about your story personally, the Brian K. Jackson story? Um, what would you say has your um, has your why changed at all? Or is your why still the same of when you got started in all of this and you thought about your why and why you want to do it? Um, is that the same now today? I th think so. Because initially when I went into the game, when I was at EMI, I remember telling somebody, I don't care how much I get paid. I just want to be known as the best at what I, for what I do. Mm -hmm. I want to be known as the best creative executive at a publishing company in the game. And that was my objective. And, you know, you can never tell somebody how to look at you or view you. But I feel like I put together a resume that was to be respected. And that's all I want to do is be respected for what I do. Um, so that is no longer my driving force, but I do still want to succeed at whatever I set out to do. Mm -hmm. So, um, so the, the objective to be the, the best at what you do, I think that will always be there. But to make a name in the industry, I don't think that's my focus anymore. So, because I I did that already, you know, you so, did that. So, <laughs> and we now uh, know <laughs> it's, it's changed slightly, but yeah, mm -hmm. that's what's up. 
Well, um, I try to, you know, open the floor for guests on the show to be able to um, tell their stories and um, share their thoughts and their feelings and anything they really want, because I just want to be able to give them a platform, because as I said in the beginning, not everyone um, gets their flowers, you know, um, but in, in the same vein, not everyone gets a platform to tell their own story. Um, and get any messages that they want out, you know, to the world or whoever's listening. Um, so I do want to give you an opportunity to share anything that maybe you haven't shared yet thus far in this interview um, or anything that, you know, is just on your heart to share with, with our listeners. Um, the floor is yours. I definitely want, I mean, I appreciate this opportunity because, you know, it's always being behind the scenes and anybody that's behind the scenes, whether it's film, television, you mm-hmm. do there is times that you're like, do people even know like what I'm doing back here? Like, cause you're, <laughs> nobody knows. And mm-hmm. you, you know, and you do sit and you watch people, especially on a, in a label side, you sit and watch people take credit for what you do. Sometimes you'll, you'll see people, you know, artists that you're the last person they remember. Have you ever seen those things when people are receiving Academy Award or Grammys and they'll go up on stage three times. And then the fourth Grammy, they'll go up and like, oh, my God, I forgot to my manager. And they're right. literally sitting next to their manager in the audience. All night. Right. Oh, all night. It's, it's like, uh, hello, remember me? <laughs> so, yeah, I, you know, I appreciate opportunities like this because it does, you know, it's like, well, at least somebody has acknowledged what I spent yeah. time doing. Absolutely. Support mm-hmm. the dope radio is here. Um, yeah, I was, you know, I was that kid, you know, you talked about cassette tapes, but I was around for cassette, cassette tapes and I would pull out the liner notes and I always wanted to know who the songwriters were, you know, the, yeah. and I actually don't know what prompted me to wonder, but, you know, yeah. but it is, you know, what I was interested in. And so that's just kind of carried over time, but, you well, know. Um, we don't have liner notes anymore. Like, yeah. You don't know what any who what you have to you really know actually has the best um the best way any way that I that I find any way to to do that is title title has started adding mm-hmm. credits you know um so it's like the when you go to the track the little mm-hmm. three dots like the track you you gotta click on this you gotta go look for it. it's not just like boom in your face but you gotta click mm-hmm. on the three dots next to the track and it'll you'll see credits and if you open credits it'll it'll give you um the lyricist, the composer, um, even the engineer sometimes is on there, oh, you know, so, um, yeah. yes, the title does a pretty good job at, at doing that, which I really appreciate. Um, so Excellent. if you're interested, the information can be found, mm. you know, you gotta want it, you yeah. know, uh, and I love to hear the stories like behind the scenes, how things got started, how things were created, um, you know, so Anytime I can get information about that, I'm like a kid in the candy store. Um, so I appreciate you sharing your stories with us. And like I said, I just heard most of these stories the other day. So thank you for repeating them for, <laughs> for my listeners. I was like, if you don't mind telling it, yeah. If you don't mind telling it again. Um, so thank you. I appreciate it. I'm sure they appreciate it too. Um, if there's any way, you know, we could support whatever you're working on in the future, by all means, let me know. Um, yeah, and you I'll doing what you're doing too. Like it's impressive because a lot of people say they're going to do something, they don't do anything. So the fact that you even are keeping up on this podcast is, is yeah, is 
great. Season six, season six, y'all, and it's a labor of love. Okay, <laughs> no, no one, no one's paying me, and I do all the work. So I do exactly. from the top to the bottom. <laughs> but you get the experience; it'll come back. There's a reason for everything. You're gonna find out why you're doing this soon. That's true. That's true. I appreciate that. Um, so yeah, but um, that's it for me. So you guys, um, make sure you guys stay locked. Um, go to the website, supportthedoperadio.com. Um, sign up for the email list. I'll keep you up to date on what's going on, who's up next on the show, because um, only our subscribers get to know that. I don't tell you in advance unless you get the email. See what I did there? You got to go sign up. Um, but we're on Instagram at support the dope um, on Facebook, support, support the dope radio. Um, make sure you guys are following those. Um, feel free to hit me up, slide and slide the DM, send me an email, whatever you gotta do. Um, I'm always around to, to talk. Um, but we have a great list still of guests coming this season. So make sure you guys stay tuned. Um, this was Brian K. Jackson. Uh, is there, is there anywhere they can come find it? You don't, you don't strike me as like a social media Type. You know, I'm on there, you know, and I know I've got to get back to the, the posting. Yeah. It's, that's a lot of work, y'all. It um, is. But, like you're on there, but you're not on there. I, I get yeah. it. I'm at, at the Brian K. Jackson now. At the Brian K. Jackson. Okay. So you guys, if you interested in following him, which of course I know you are now with all this information that you have now in stories, uh, go follow him too, because we're supporting the dope over here. That's what we do. Um, but than that, this is Brian K. Jackson. I'm your girl CB. Support the dope radio. CB out.